Thank you very much, Ray. Lovely to be here again. As you were talking about your childhood school experiences, I must confess a few of mine came to mind. (laughs) I think the biggest shock I ever got, it didn't result in six of the best, but it certainly resulted in an essay I had to write on acrobatics. We had a form room which was on the ground floor, but it was a separate building. And uh, the doors were in this building. This double classroom was on the opposite side to the rest of the school building. So when no teachers were looking, we used to jump out of the windows on the other side because it was a shorter distance. And after one lunchtime, um, our foremaster came in and said, hands up, the boy that jumped out through the window at lunchtime. And to our surprise, two of us put up our hands. <laughs> They'd only seen one. And it wasn't me, but I still got uh, punishment for that. (laughs) Anyway, good to be with you. And we're looking at Exodus chapter 20, just the first three verses. Exodus chapter 20. It's the beginning of the Ten Commandments. And this is what we read. Verse 1, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Three verses, three points. Well, there'll be more points, subpoints, if you like. In verse 1, we see God's voice. We'll consider that as we go along. In verse 2, we consider God's covenant. In verse 3, we consider God's uniqueness. So first of all, in verse 1, God's voice, God spoke all these words, and we have every reason to believe from Scripture that the assembled congregation around the foot of the mountain actually heard God speak. There were two to three million of these people that came out of Egypt. It was within the early months of their pilgrimage through the wilderness. And uh, they were assembled, we'll see that a little bit more in a moment, around the foot of Mount Sinai. And this was a momentous event, the giving of the Ten Commandments, one of the great events in human history. We'll explain why as we go along. And in uh, the previous chapter, which you looked at a little while ago, verse 19 of chapter 19, uh, it tells us there, the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. So we got every reason to believe that this wasn't just um, a a sort of uh, speaking through Moses. They heard the voice of God. And recording this, the writer to the Hebrews said, and uh, I'll just read this to you in chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 18, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words, that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. So these people really heard the word of God. They heard the voice of God. It's very few occasions in history where God's word has been uttered. But the first time, and it was a series of of, uh, things that he said, is when the universe was created, God spoke, and it was. By faith, we believe that. 
He didn't do it through the processes of chance evolution over billions of years. God spoke, and immediately the basic ingredients of life, of creation, formed themselves into living organisms. And all the the things that are uh, 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 written in Genesis chapter 1, God spoke. In other words, the universe was created not by a big bang, but by a big voice. And now God is speaking again. And what he's doing here, as we'll see as we go through this, he's giving humanity a moral code for living. Very, very important. A little later than my experience at school I just related, when I left school at 18 after the sixth form, I went into a junior management training scheme at a big organization. And I was uh, going around different departments, and this particular department, led by a young high-flying manager, a young Welsh fellow, he'd been to university, I hadn't, and uh, I, I was allocated to be with him for a week. After a day or two, uh, no, I think it was the afternoon of the very first day. He said, here, do you go to church or something? You haven't sworn yet. So, <laughs> and I said, yeah, I do. I'm a Christian. Oh, he said, um, well, he said, look, I, I don't believe. I'm, I'm, I'm not a believer. But he said, I will grant you one thing. The greatest moral code that the human race has ever received is the Ten Commandments. I thought, well, you know, that wasn't bad. <laughs> Uh, This is the moment when God is giving humanity a pattern for living which comes from the voice of God himself. God, of course, spoke on other occasions, particularly when Jesus was here. The voice of God spoke out again, this is my beloved son, listen to him. We're going to hear a voice of God again, of what we call the rapture, when Jesus shall suddenly appear. And bring with him the spirits of those Christians already departed. And with a loud command, the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive and remain shall be forever with the Lord. The voice of God. I believe God still speaks, but perhaps not in that way, that that loud public way that he spoke here at Mount Sinai. But God speaks in the stillness into our hearts through the Holy Spirit deep within us. Have you ever heard the voice of God? Have we been listening, the still, small voice? The voice deep within our own spirits, where God is speaking to us. Young people, as you grow up, God wants to talk to you. Like Samuel of old, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. God wants to speak to us, perhaps not in the same way as he did on that mountain long ago but to speak into our lives and hearts as to what he wants us to do for him, the way he wants us to go. One of the greatest experiences we can ever have, particularly as young people, is that feeling deep within that God has spoken to us. We've heard what he wants. Are you listening? You see, prayer is not just speaking. It's waiting on the Lord and listening as well. So God spoke. But uh, in in this idea of God speaking here, we're going to break it down, first one, into two little sub-points, if you like. And we see, first of all, uh, a chosen people. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to a people that he has chosen. A people called to have a relationship with God. 
Uh, and this is why we say it's so wonderful when God speaks to us. It's because he loves us and he wants a relationship with us and he wants us to hear what he's saying and to follow him and obey him as we've just sung in that hymn. They were a chosen people. Moses reminded the people of that many, well, 40 years later. And again, I'll just uh, remind you, as Moses reminded those people of what God had said. Don't turn to it, but I'll read you Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And again, Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says this, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Israel was made great by God. We love Israel and we love the Jewish people because God has used them to reveal himself through the Jews. Jesus, the ultimate revelation of God, was a Jew himself. And uh, the Jewish nation had been chosen by God. They were great. God didn't choose them because they were great. They were great because God had chosen them. And uh, the people that God chooses, the people that God puts his hand upon, the people that are listening to his voice, the people that are saying, yes, Lord, we're your people, we're going to have a relationship with you, are those people that the Lord will make great. Maybe not great in the eyes of the world, but great in God's sight. And that's what matters. We're great here tonight, and we're great because God has loved us. We've been redeemed in the precious blood of Jesus. Paul was able to say, he loved me and gave himself for me. A chosen people, a relationship with God, we're great. But also, as they listened to God's voice, they were an assembled people. They were an assembled people. Now, this is a lovely thought. Again, in Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments are repeated. But at the end, uh, where Moses repeats the Ten Commandments 40 years later, when they are just about to enter the Promised Land, he says, These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain, from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. The whole assembly. I've been to Mount Sinai. Uh, We believe it is the right place. At the foot of the... At the, bay, at, the, at the southern end of the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, it's an amazing area. Very, it, it's a desert, but mountainous desert. Hardly any trees or plants. And uh, you suddenly got these uh, sort of several little peaks. And uh, all the way around the bottom, there's a valley. Wide, sandy valley. And it goes all the way around the bottom of that mountain. And the top of the mountain is 8,000 feet above sea level. And the floor of the valley around there is 2,000 feet above sea level, with St. Catherine's Monastery right there. Uh, by the way, just take a thought for Moses. 
because he was with the people around the bottom in the valley. And uh, the Bible tells us that God called Moses to go up to the top of the mountain. So that's 6,000 feet. Then he said, now you go down. And then he says, you come up. And then you go down again. And he was 80 years old, the poor old fellow. And he was going up and down like a yo-yo. Well, for Moses, life began at 80. And, uh, but, but this is the important point. Two to three million people altogether, as far as we can tell. And this has to be the mountain. And I looked at this for myself when I was there several years ago. For the whole of that company of people to surround the base of that mountain. And uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, as we just read, Moses said, Your whole assembly, which is a circle of God's people. God's people in the round. And the Hebrew word for assembly is kwahal, Q-A-H-A-L. And it means literally people in a circle with God in the middle. And in the middle of that circle of God's people was the mountain where God came down from the mountain and from which he spoke. And the whole mountain was ablaze. And there was tremendous uh, upheaval there with thundering and lightning. And then God spoke. It was an awesome time. But in order for it to be true to what the scripture tells us, it had to be, there had to be provision for people to encircle it. It was the first of seven quahals in, in, in the Bible. People gathering around God with God in the middle. And here this was the first time God met with public, publicly with a community of people since the fall in the Garden of Eden. All those years before, God was in the middle. That's how it is with God. After the Quahal at Mount Sinai, you had the tabernacle in the wilderness journeys and on into the, the, uh, uh, the early centuries of the nation of Israel. And God was in this tabernacle at the Holy of Holies. That's his presence, the Ark of the Covenant. And all the, nation, all the tribes were gathered right around. They were encircling the presence of God in the middle. That was number two. Number three was when the temple was built, and the temple was where God's presence was manifest, and, all, and it was in the center of the nation, and people went up to the temple from all over the nation. Number four was when Jesus was here, always in the middle of the crowds, always surrounded with people. He even died on a middle cross. Jesus was in the midst. He said himself when he was here, where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst. Number five is the church age. And that's why we have the pulpit in the middle. And we're gathered around because God's presence in the church age is manifested in the word and the spirit together. We gather around the anointed word of God. Everything else we do, whether it's prayer or praise or remembrance of the Lord, is our responses. But God is present and presences himself in the church age through the declaration of the word of God under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I've been more moved in the sense of God's presence when the word of God has been opened up than at any other time when God's speaking. That's when revivals happen. Then so when the Reformation came along. That's when renewal happens. When we listen to what God has to say, and the scriptures are opened up with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Those who worship him, Jesus told the woman at the well, must worship him in spirit and in truth. The word of God 
and in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You see, before the Reformation, the pulpit was over on the side. Still is in some churches. And at the Reformation, the altar was taken out. We don't have an altar, we have the Lord's table. And the pulpit was moved into the middle, and we gather around the word. That's why in our nonconformist churches, the message is always the most important part, and longer than the brief homilies they have in some churches. Number six, the millennial reign of Christ, when Jesus shall come and take up the throne of David, and he shall reign on David's throne, and all the nations will come up to Mount Zion, and Jesus will be the center of world affairs. Number seven, after the millennial reign is finished and time shall be no more, and the eternal realms have come back again, then the city four square of God in the very center of God's creation will be where we live, where we're present, and God will dwell in the midst of her. God speaking. He loves to be in the midst of his people. Not uh, as it was uh, Mount Sinai, uh, but uh, in a lovely sense of fellowship and the wonder of his people surrounding him. Quahal. And the Hebrew word quahal was uh, translated in Greek in the New Testament as ecclesia, which means church. And church isn't a denomination, and it certainly isn't a building. It's simply the word to denote God's people meeting in the round with God in the middle. Quahal, ecclesia, assembly, church. That's what church is. We meet with God in our midst. Isn't that lovely? Where did it start? Here at Mount Sinai, when God spoke from the mountain. And so God's uh, voice in verse, uh, in verse 1. Verse 2, God's covenant. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And there, God is saying, something amazing happened when I chose you and made you great. I did so by releasing you, by delivering you, by bringing you out of slavery. When Moses was sent back to uh, um, Egypt to bring the people out, he started off by taking the elders of Israel and going to, um, going to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh really, uh, well, <laughs> the expression that we used to say is, sent them away with a flea in their ear. And uh, they, uh, Moses was really unhappy. He went back to God and said, look, I've done exactly what you've asked me to do. Uh, and I've told Pharaoh he's got to let the people go. But uh, he won't listen. It's all no good. And, and, and Moses is wondering whether he was hallucinating in the desert, maybe. or What's going on? And amongst the things that, uh, that uh, God said to Moses was this. Therefore say to the Israelites, and this is Exodus 6, verse 6, I'll read it to you. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. That's what God promised Moses. 
And here God is speaking in chapter 20 and saying, and I did just that. I just want to go back to those verses in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6, 7 and 8. And notice the sevenfold deliverance that these people experienced. Verse 6 again of Exodus 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and one, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Two, I will free you from being slaves to them. Three, I will redeem you <coughs> excuse me, with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Four, I will take you as my own people. Five, I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Six, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Seven, I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Now that's what God is referring to at Mount Sinai in verse two. Uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. But those seven I wills, what a lovely, lovely gospel message they encapsulate. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, God's covenant people. He brought them out of slavery, and so he does with you and me under the new covenant. He brings us out from under the yoke of this world, of Satan and of sin. He delivers us from the yoke and the bondage of all that the enemy has thrown at us. I will free you from being slaves to them. If there's some dear friend here tonight, and you're a slave to sin in any form, to habits, or to anything else that's wrong, God will deliver you. That's the deliverance he's promised, the God that brings us out. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. In fact, it was two outstretched arms on the cross of Calvary. We've already remembered that redemption this evening by sharing the communion together. And we've redeemed. That is, we've been bought with a price. We're not our own. We've been purchased for God. They were, and so are we. And then it goes on, I will take you as my own people. And Israel under the old covenant with the people of God, the chosen people of God, I believe that he still has that eternal covenant with Israel, but we're not dealing with that tonight. But you and I, as we come through uh, the deliverance from the bondage of sin and the world, and redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, we are God's covenant people. We are his own people. We're the people of God. In the same way we've been delivered. And I am, uh, and I will be, uh, you will be my own people, and I will be your God. There is no other God that we have. There is no other God that we need. We don't need luck. We don't need the lottery. We don't need this world's wisdom. We don't need finance. We don't need all of these things, however much God may use them as his tools. We don't need them as our God. We just need to worship the living Lord. I will be your God. And he's the one we turn to as we are his delivered covenant people. I would, uh, and then it goes on. I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand. So he's going to bring the children of Israel to their promised land. He's going to bring us to the promised land of heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I conducted a funeral on Friday afternoon. 
And it was lovely, a 98-year-old lady who we know had come to know the Lord in the last few years of her life and come into a settled conviction of her salvation. And I was able to share that with her family who were not spiritual at all. And I don't know how many other Christians there were in that congregation, but I was able to say, she's with Jesus. She's in her promised land. And I, uh, and I will uh, bring you to the land, and finally I will give it to you as a possession. We're delivered people. We're God's covenant people, chosen, and we're going to be joint heirs with Christ. And so God deals with us today. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the uh, land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And that's, for, uh, that's our portion too. So God's covenant uh, people. Uh, by the way, the, uh, there's a difference, by the way, between legalism and holiness. As God's people, we're not legalistic. We're not under the bondage of the law, but we've been asked to be holy people by our own desire to follow Jesus. And the law that we have here is not an obligation on us in the sense of being a a legal responsibility that's been put upon us. So many Christians have gone into legalism. But we're a holy people. We have a people who love to do what pleases God because he has redeemed us and he's released us. And then finally, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. God's uniqueness. Here's the first commandment. You, uh, when it says, when, when uh, the Lord says, no other gods before me, that's no other gods, not just who you put before me, but in my sight. I don't want my people to have any other God uh, that, that takes my place. I want to have this relationship with you. I want to have this covenant friendship. I've done so much and I want you to relate to that. I don't want you to have anything in your life which takes the place of faith in me. And I'm a faithful God. Again, I will just make two points about this. First of all, This responsibility not to have any other gods, either that we put before God or that uh, even exists in our hearts before God's sight. That's a burden upon us all who accept God through Jesus Christ. It's a daily duty. Is there anything in my life? Is there anything in my walk that I'm making a God that's part of what I worship, part of what means more to me than my relationship with the Lord? Have I got anything else that's taking his place in my life? You shall have no other gods before me. Is there anything that God can look down and see my heart and knows that there's something there that takes a little bit of his place and takes a little bit of his glory? It's a daily burden upon each one of us, a daily duty. But also we remember... How is it that we can have this wonderful, wonderful faith and trust in the living God, in the eternal God? You see, one of the amazing things, yes, there is a God. We believe that uh, the, the, the God made the whole universe, the heavens and the earth. There is the living God, and he has revealed himself through Scripture. He has shown us who he is. 
you know, the Bible doesn't prove God. It doesn't uh, set out to prove that there is a God. It takes it for granted, the Bible takes it for granted, that we know there must be a first cause, a supreme being, an originator of all material things. Jesus said, and that God is spirit, and out of the spirit world came the physical world we live in. And God doesn't uh, set out in the scripture to prove that he exists. He just shows us what he's like. He shows us his self-revelation. He shows us who he is, that he's a God of love, God of mercy, God of justice, a God of beauty, a God of faithfulness. He reveals himself. And with a God like that, the true God, the living God, the only God that has revealed himself in all his glory and stood the test of time, do we want any other God? Do we want any other power in our lives? Do we want any other person, being, thing, material or, materially or in any other way that takes the place of God? He's revealed himself. And in Scripture we find all we need to know about the wonder of our God. And above all else, he's revealed himself through Jesus, who walked the scene, who was tempted and tested in every point like we are, yet without sin. We'll be able to, and we're able to say, he walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. I don't want you to have any other God. I don't want you to have any other power in your life. I don't want you to have any superstition or any false idols. I don't want you to have anything like that. I just want you to have me. Because I gave myself for you. And I'm the one that loves you. And I don't want you to have any other objective in your life, other than your relationship with me and your obedience to my will, your desire to fellowship with me and to walk with me and to talk with me. Micah chapter uh, 6 verse 8 says, What does God require of you? To love, uh, ju- to, to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. May it be that as God's covenant people, who have heard God's voice in one way or another, we will be those that say, Lord, thank you for all that you've done. Lord, I don't want my relationship with you to be something that's just mechanical or ritualistic and certainly not legalistic. I want a living, every day, every moment relationship with yourself. Lord, I want to have that wonderful fellowship, that friendship. I want to abide in Christ. I want to hear your voice. I want to be filled with your spirit. I just want to know you as my God and my Lord, through and through. That's how we keep the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yes, it's a requirement on the whole of humanity. But as I say, we're not being legalistic about it. We do it because we love him. And we just give ourselves to him. And we say, Lord, there's no one I desire more than you. May we be those of whom God can say, yes, I love my people because they love me. May we love our Lord and follow him with obedience and with glad hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen.